Hello and welcome to Keanu Club, like a cool breeze over the mountains. This is episode 49, The Matrix Reloaded and Enter the Matrix from 2003. I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I'm Mike Manzi. With us today we have our Matrix and religion expert, John Brooks. Hello, John. Hello. We are in the Matrix sandwich right now. This is the meat and the cheese in the middle. We have the Animatrix on one side, we got the Matrix Revolutions on the other side, and in the middle we've got this movie where the problem is choice. Do you want three really profound heavy dialogue scenes or do you want an hour and a half of insane action or you can just have both it's all things to all people (laughs) so true yeah the matrix 2 is excessive but actually i kind of think of this as part one of the matrix 2 and then the next one part 2 has like that kind of feel for me what i didn't know so this movie came out in may and revolutions came out in november i didn't realize that their original plan was to spread them out over course of weeks not months which seems like it would have cost at the box office which is probably why they didn't do it but would have been it is, crazy it is why they didn't if do it would have been like yeah. hey so like it's say it's may 1st and then may 21st you know the next one comes like that's that's insane because they shot them at the same time i don't know what i would have done the plan i think was originally summer bookends i think they were going to do one was memorial day and the other one was going to be i don't maybe it wasn't labor day but i think the idea was to have fourth of july uh, maybe for some reason I i thought the original plan was may and august and that basically they were going to eat up the first round of summer box office and then they were like going to time it specifically for like when the last round of blockbusters gets released in August. But I could be wrong about that. But yeah, the idea was that they were both going to come out that summer. That was the initial intention. And also when Reloaded first came out, as I rewatched it, I realized one of the things, we'll talk about the, the cliffhanger ending, I guess, a little bit later. But but one of the things that I'd forgotten about is one what made the cliffhanger ending kind of a little bit more satisfying when you saw it in the theaters is that the Revolution's trailer was immediately oh. following that ending. I think even before the credits, right? It was just like they went right into the trailer and my favorite scene from Revolutions was in the trailer, and it like it's, it's it was really well done the way that they placed it with that ending. So it wasn't quite so. Ugh, gotta wait. However many. And I do like the to be concluded note, not to be continued, but to be concluded. Right. Like this is going right. to be the end of everything. But I have to say, like in rewatching it without that, uh, it felt a little bit more abrupt, and I was like, oh yeah, I kind of forgot that's how it actually ends. That tag is actually at the end on the. Blu-ray after the credits, though. They, they left it in, but they moved it a little further uh, toward the end of the oh, running time. Okay. There. Yeah, but gotcha. I, I let the credits run, and it's still there. That would have been very bold even today to release movies that close. I don't even think The Hunger Games, like the third one, like that was split into two. I don't think that came out. No, know? they were a year apart. Yeah, they were yeah. a year apart. And well, the, Harry, the Harry Potters were probably a year apart, too, the Deathly Hallows. I think Deathly Hallows was, was winter and summer. And especially since The Matrix... Reloaded gives you so much new information to chew on. You might want to go see this movie two or three times, to be honest. It just if you're a big fan, just get all of what they're delivering here. And then, you know, you want some time to digest that before the next movie. And maybe go back and watch, like, the Animatrix and play the video game that'll be out in between and all that kind of stuff. And just <laughs> Eat let it, the breakfast cereal and, yeah. Uh, just let it digest it all. <laughs> The Matrix Reloaded is exactly what I want in the expanded universe that we didn't really get through most of the Animatrix, because I don't care about like an Olympic athlete who can suddenly become fast. Here, I just want 12 ships, 12 captains. We don't get Suicide Squad title card introductions to who these people are and like theme songs for each one. We're just like, 
it's established these are important people. This is basically Zion's like last hope. These are the most important people around, and we're just going to jump into it. And if you love the idea of the first want to blow it up in pretty much every way, this is what you want. You don't want the animatrix where just like, oh, there's other things that don't have anything to do with Neo and Morpheus and Trinity going on. These are the things that matter. These are the people that matter. They're going to be doing the things that actually get us to the end of this trilogy. One of the things that I think what you're saying there in terms of the structure, that it's not, there's not the title card thing. There's there's kind of an assumption that you just take for granted the backstories of these people, that it's sort of like the world is assumed in some way, and, and that's that can be really refreshing <laughs> uh, in a lot of big movies like this. Part of it has to do with, you have to understand the religion element of it in this case. So this movie is a Greek epic, right? It's the Odyssey and the Iliad. And it's, it's built like that. So to understand the Matrix trilogy, one of the things, when we talked about the Matrix, we talked about the Eastern religious influences that are sort of the core of that particular movie. The first Matrix is basically a, a standard martial arts movie, right, built around sort of these ideas of Taoism and Confucianism and Buddhism. And if we look at the trilogy as kind of a progression of Eastern to Western religion, the last one deals with specifically latter Christian ideas. But the middle one, if we go from the Eastern philosophy into sort of the transitional period between Eastern religion and modern religion, what you're left with is basically the, the Greco-Roman tradition, your, early Judaism, Zoroastrianism. There's a lot of that stuff in Reloaded. And Reloaded itself is actually built like a Homeric epic poem. Like in what way? Um, it deals narrowly with one person's kind of epic journey. So Neo is kind of a Odysseus figure. Actually, Link is the, his his sort of side story bears a lot of resemblance to Odysseus in that you know he has to like leave his wife behind and go on this epic journey and like do you know for the salvation of the kingdom and so on and so forth. But it also because there's this like the Iliad the way it's structured is is about a war right, but it, it's 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 sort of dual layered because there's what's going on with the gods and what's going on with the Trojans on the ground happening at the same time in the Iliad. And so Reloaded is kind of doing that same thing, right? There's this huge war going on. It's happening on two different levels, two different dimensions. And you have this sort of narrow focus on this figure, but there's there's all this stuff going on around. There's all this, as you point out, there's all this like extra stuff on the perimeters. And if you read a Homeric poem, you basically have to have a degree <laughs> like classical studies to understand what the hell it's talking about, because a lot of what Homer talks about is just kind of assumed, right? You just kind of, it's assumed you know the history, and so you're not given extensive introductions to all of the key players and all the different factions and allies and so on and so forth. So I think Wachowski took that idea, the, the basic structure of either the Odyssey or the Iliad, and kind of adapted it for this, which I think is part of the reason why it's such a weird movie. <laughs> <laughs> it, it doesn't really work if you haven't seen the first one, right? I don't know who's seeing this one without seeing the first mm, one. But no, it doesn't. There would be two different groups of people that you don't know. There's the people that it's assumed that you know, like the people from the first movie. And then there's the people that they know that you're not going to know, and they're going to sort of weave them in. But like this movie spares no time in just dropping us into the middle. Like, we're months or years or whatever later. Like, Neo is now not just a guy who came back to life and jumped into an agent and blew him up. He is a guy who can basically become Superman. And then at the end of the movie, he can even control the real world. Whatever time jump it's been, he has 
all these powers, and we're, we don't see any of that. It's not even like the beginning of a story here. It's like, this is the cutoff point where, like, shit's about to get real. This is where we need to jump in. Smith shows up in the first, like, ten minutes, and then three other agents show Like, it's, they're just like, all right, here's, stuff's going wrong. Like, here we are. Let's just watch what happens. I actually kind of find it refreshing, especially watching it nowadays amidst, like, all the stuff that's come since, because it doesn't take its audience for granted anymore. You know, like, it figures if you enjoyed what it was talking about the first time, then you're on board for what it's going to give you, and hopefully you're along for this ride. It, it, it gets expansive quickly. You know, I think about the Star Wars expanded universe and just how weird and intricate it can get, and I almost feel like the Matrix can be something along that line if you wanted to. It's not going to take its time waiting for you to catch up. It'll give you plenty of what you want, too. It's not all guesswork. There's certain scenes where you are going to find out exactly who the Oracle is. You know, she's going to lay it on the line completely. And in other scenes, you're going to get concrete answers. So I think it's mostly designated to, like, the real-world Zion stuff. And that's cool, too, because it grounds all of that. And the urgency of what's going on makes it feel important to me and to the viewer and that like it's necessary to be invested in this just as much even though it's all brand new and we don't have a whole movie of this even though it is like 40 or 50 minutes before we dive back into the matrix properly is it really just about just about yeah there's that little action scene in the beginning when they're talking about the osiris message which i thought was cool like how directly that tied in these geotherms confirm the last transmission of the osiris The machines are digging. They're boring from the surface straight down to Zion. Mother. They'll avoid the entire perimeter defense. How fast are they moving? Control estimates their descent at 100 meters an hour. Shit. How deep are they? Almost 2,000 meters. What about the scans from the Osiris? They can't be accurate. They may be. What? It's not possible. That'd mean there are a quarter million sentinels up there. That's right. That can't be. Why not? A sentinel for every man, woman, and child in Zion. That sounds exactly like the thinking of a machine to me. Morpheus, glad you could join us. Niobe. Yeah, and then pretty much they go back to Zion, and the Oracle calls for him, and I checked, it's pretty much like 40, 50 minutes. I agree that I'm glad it's a legitimate sequel, even more so with Revolutions. Nobody would watch Revolutions without watching it. Like, it wouldn't make any sense whatsoever. You know, it, it's just, it's it's absurd to think that somebody would just watch that movie, you know, just picking it up without having seen the first two. Like, I appreciate that element of it. And I also appreciate, in re-watching this, I haven't, probably haven't watched it for four or five years. I forgot how weird it is. Like, it's a really weird movie. And it's really, it's, it's far more, I think, like, authentically Wachowski than the first movie is, which I, I feel like the first movie is, a lot more kind of narrowly focused. It's creative and it's, you know, innovative and all that stuff, but, like, it doesn't indulge in the weirdness the way that the Wachowskis like to do. This feels like The Matrix as a real Wachowski movie <laughs> because it's so all over the place and there's just goofy things that happen and, and I love that stuff and it, it makes it more appealing to me. I think I just, I, I liked the movie this time, like, I, in an endearing kind of way more than I have before because I sort of was more kind of aware of its weirdness. But, yeah, I agree. It's, re- it's refreshing. It's, like, it's, it's nice that there's it's not just like an unbound it, not only are they doing their own thing but like the idea that they're not caving to you for not having seen the first movie although nobody didn't see the first movie it was enormous like everybody freaking saw the first movie it was, those people don't exist yeah I like that I, I wish more sequels worked that way well talking about just briefly how enormous the first one was this one at the time was the highest grossing R-rated film in history 
it would be past the next year by Passion of the Christ, which is funny in that they're both, you know, Christ-like figures. But, I mean, it's such a different movie. But, like, you know, the, the first one was enormous. I mean, I didn't see it in theaters. I remember my friend who showed this to me for the first time, his parents saw it, like, nine times in theaters. Like, they just were obsessed with it. I don't know if it was huge to everyone. I think it was huge to people in the know. And then by the time this movie came out, everybody had seen the first one, and they're like, oh, we need to go see this. I didn't even see the first one more towards the end of the run. I mean, I did see it in theaters, but not until word of mouth kind of spread a little more. And I think home video and DVD at the time, like, really set it off, and people were ready for the second one by then. The home video market helped it a lot. It's interesting because I remember the backlash began, even though this movie made a huge amount of money. This is when people were like started saying they hated the Matrix and by Revolutions, which is the most divisive movie in the in the in the trilogy. I always remembered that Reloaded did less well than the first one, so it's interesting that I'm dead wrong about that. But I guess it's one of those things where everybody was going to go see it no matter what at that point. But I do remember that Revolutions got beat out by like Elf at the box office, I think. The, it's it's first weekend or second week or something like that. And that was a big deal and everybody was shocked. And they're both classics. What's kind of crazy about the budget is that Revolutions made less money than the first one. So The Matrix made worldwide 463, Reloaded made 742, and then Revolutions made 427. They all made more than their money back, even if you double the production budget. But for this franchise where it's one of the most acclaimed, most revolutionary, even if you want to argue that point, as John did a little bit or mentioned in the first episode or the first movie, that it's not necessarily as revolutionary as I might think. But to have this landmark action film and then have two sequels and have the third movie just be like, nah, we're, we're, I mean, we're going to see it, but like, we're not going to like it. It's just sort of disappointing, but... There's a whole lot to talk about there. We're going to get to that next week. We have Reloaded today. Yeah, and, and Reloaded to me is, it still baffles me. Like Again, I know, it's, I know it's a much weirder movie, and I know the themes of it are maybe not as immediately sort of resonant with people. It's not Philosophy 101. It's like Theology and Mythology 400. There's some stuff that is much more tailored to a much more niche kind of audience there. But... It just it, It's so remarkable to me to watch this movie, and there really is, like, the idea of a blockbuster like that, even now, I just can't picture it. This movie is so interesting and, like, unique, and it has so much flair and audacity. This, to me, is a revolutionary movie in the way the first one isn't, because this really is, like, to me, the, the first one without handcuffs, and... I still don't quite understand why people don't love it. <laughs> like it's, I, it, it's one of those things where there's a lot of movies that I love that I understand people not loving them, but this one to me is like, this is a really cool movie, and and it's, <laughs> it's better than it's better than the first Matrix on every level. Even when it's a massive weird failure, it's still better than the first Matrix on almost every level. So, what do you guys think of this movie? I'm obviously the big vocal fan of it. I love this. Like, I like it the more I watch it. Like this time, I was telling Joey this time especially paying closer attention than usual perhaps like it's my favorite screening of it yet but I do think it's extremely indulgent and it's (laughs) very Wachowski and Uh it's amazing that they had carte blanche to do what they want with a major studio and that's basically what happened is it's like just go do whatever you want and at times they take it a little too far for the mainstream audience whereas the first Matrix was very accessible it got deep but not too deep, right? You mean like the uh, architect sort of, scene, maybe? Yeah, I think I think that, I think for most people that's my favorite film. scene. I love that. I mean, I love it. I was thinking before 
this is one of the few times where I feel like conversations feel just as engrossing as the action sequences. To me, that is good. Like, that's great. I feel like there's great science fiction here. There's great action. It speaks to me. So, you know, we're on the same side regarding all that. I love this movie. I didn't realize how much of it I had memorized because I had the first one movie and almost entirely memorized. I don't I feel like I haven't seen this one that many times, but I guess I have. For the first movie when we watched The Matrix, we were talking about how if you really want to get into the religion of it, you can get into the religion of it. If you just want to see really cool-looking people shooting lots of guns, you can do that here too. And that's the same thing here on a bigger scale. But what's interesting is that how closely they back-to-back them. Like, to me, there are three real key scenes in this movie in terms of dialogue, in terms of let's really just dig in here and figure out what's going on. And there's the scene with the Oracle in the park, and then there's a scene where they go basically... I mean, it's not... I mean, in the third movie, they're literally going to go through hell to get the Merovingian, but, like, they're sort of going through hell to get the Merovingian in this movie. And then there's the architect scene. And what's crazy and really kind of cool is how they back to back or like bookend those three scenes with just crazy action scenes like there's right. the oracle <laughs> conversation where right. it's like five minutes of if you miss a couple lines or you like don't catch something you might be like i have no idea what they're talking about and then as soon as that ends like she walks away and then a hundred agents show up and that's literally <laughs> the same scene or like the Merovingian, when they have that conversation with him, and then, you know, they leave the club and they basically, Neo walks into that grand hall and fights the six guys. Or there is the architect scene, and then Neo literally saves the day and saves Trinity. It's just, you have this really intense conversation or, you know, exposition, and then you can really be into that. Like Mike said, you know, the words are more interesting sometimes than the action. And then whether you hate that or just sort of want to change a pace, then it's just like, oh, here's crazy action that you've literally never seen before. There's apparently like five shots in that burly brawl with him against the Smiths where there's just literally no people. It's all CGI yeah. people. <laughs> and you, and it's dead obvious. And like, that's one of the worst <laughs> things about this movie is the CGI. All CGI scenes are terrible. Well, but... I do want to, as we're watching this, just a real quick, side note, as we watch this, as we're recording this, I'm watching The Sopranos for the first time, and as bad as the CGI can be at points, it's nothing compared to the CGI of Tony's mother in the episode where she dies, where I was just like, oh god, 15 years ago, 2001, not that long ago, but it's just, whew. At least for The Matrix, when it gets to CGI, I always remind myself, well, I'm looking at them inside of an actual Right, it's a computer, computer program. program. Right, it works. <laughs> They're so... computer. Right, that's how it's supposed to look. But even with the CGI, like, that scene is just so delightful. It's just, like, so freaking stupid and, and just over-the-top and crazy. I, I can't help but watch that scene and just, like, smile the entire time at how absolutely ridiculously lunatic it is. But, like, in this way that is just completely just, like, wonderful. <laughs> like, just, it's, and we come it's, to find out symbolic, too. Not just Smith multiplying himself like a virus, but, uh, and, you know, speaking, like, the virus that he claimed humanity may have been in the first one, it's kind of funny that now he's, like, a computer virus. But also what he represents in terms of Neo now, and, like, how much more Smith it takes to balance out the equation because of how powerful Neo is and 
it's interesting how the Wachowskis can give us the, this amazing action sequence, but also it means something too. Like it propels the story in a way. And what's kind of cool is you really don't get a sense of what Agent Smith is doing in this movie. Like you just see him kind of multiplying and growing and becoming bigger. Maybe toward the end of the movie, you really sort of get a sense of it. Well, the very last shot, right? right that very last yes. word. You're like, oh, okay. <laughs> but I mean, like right. the first thing you see is he gives his earpiece. He's like, he set me free. You're like, oh, I don't know what that means, but that can't be good for anybody. Yeah. And for him to now just be operating outside the system and able to do whatever he wants, like the self-aware evil computer program, I'm sure that if, for instance, the Merovingian wasn't about this life of decadence with this beautiful wife who probably loathes him but still is by his side, he could do evil, horrible shit just like Agent Smith is doing, but I feel like he's the kind of evil computer program that likes to tinker and pull the strings and write code for cake that's going to give women orgasms so he can go have tea with Miss McGill in the bathroom with these computer programs. But Smith is just like, I just need to become the most powerful thing. And we really don't realize until maybe the final shot of the final battle in Revolutions where they're in the rain just how much of Neo's equal he is. I mean, that's sort of the thing that's set up. But until we get there, we don't really get a sense of what he's doing or why he's doing it or why he kind of really feels compelled. But it's cool just to see him like go crazy, turn everybody into Agent Smith. There's a couple things that you've said over the last few minutes, Joey, that I want to kind of backtrack on a little bit. We'll talk about the architect scene. We'll unpack that a little bit later as well. But so one of the things that you were talking about is the sort of the way that the three most important exposition scenes are bookended by crazy battle, right? Which itself is, again, that's the Homeric structure. That's basically how like the Iliad plays out, which is really, really important dialogue between people epic battle, (laughs) really important dialogue, epic battle, really important dialogue. And one kind of leads to the other. So like the epic battles have context within um, what's being said between the characters and so forth. The big tip-offs in this movie that they're using this structure is in a lot of the character names, like Ajax is one of the characters. Ajax is a hero of the Iliad. Niobe is a Greek tragedy. Persephone is the wife of the Merovingian. Do you guys know who Persephone is? Yes, she is the queen of the underworld, married to... Right, Hades. But she was, specifically, she was tricked into marrying Hades and and doesn't want to be there and has actively works against him on many occasions throughout Greek myth. So the idea of the Merovingian is kind of a Hades figure. But again, there's this sense that within the context of the Matrix, which you can say is kind of like the god world, right? There's these allusions to Greek myth throughout in Reloaded. So there's obviously, I mean, there's obvious intentionality there. In terms of the Merovingian himself, do you guys know the significance of that name? That's sort of a much more obscure... I looked it up, but you could probably explain it better than I can. <laughs> okay, so the Merovingians were one of the first dynasties of what's modern-day France. They were succeeded by the, the Carolinians. But the Merovingians, one of whom was Clovis, and Clovis was the person who brought Christianity, essentially, to mainland Europe. He made a deal with the church. to Essentially, he was a warlord, and essentially they would give him wealth and an army uh, in exchange for him essentially Christianizing Europe with a sword. <laughs> and so he was the first barbarian to be baptized. But the myth of the Merovingians, and it's not clear where this started, but there's this idea that they're basically the, the protectors of the grail. And this sort of caught fire when the whole Priory of Zion conspiracy was unleashed in the 1960s and 70s, which is a totally made-up thing. It doesn't exist, but it made its way into a book called uh, Holy Holy Blood, Holy Something. Uh, I can't remember what it's called. But that's the book that Dan Brown based the Da Vinci Code on, oh, right? Okay. So the Merovingians in the Da Vinci Code 
world of reality are the inheritors of the bloodline of Christ. But the idea basically is this. The reason why he's called the Merovingian is that the key maker is the person who acts as the liaison from sort of one era of understanding to another, right? So the key maker is what gives Neo access to the architect, which brings him to a new level of consciousness where he understands something in a completely new context in a new way that creates a new dynamic and reality to what's going on in the world. And so the idea that the Merovingians were the protectors of the secret of Christianity that sort of kept it alive and also, you know, sort of gave rise to a new era of religion, which they really did do throughout the European continent. That's why he's given that name. So that's another hint as to like what the purpose of this movie is in terms of the way we should be looking at it in the context of, of the development of religious ideas through history. This is literally the middle part, right? This is the part before we get to the explosion of Christian iconography and imagery that is in revolutions, <laughs> that is, you know, all sort of deep level Christian theology stuff in that movie. But this, I saw something that Merovingian is also a type of Gnostic church. Is that true? Do you know about that? No, I don't know about that. So it's on IMDb, and like I say every time I reference IMDb trivia, it might be completely made up and lie, and nobody knows what they're talking about. But it was something, you know, they mentioned about the dynasty, but they also said it's a type of Gnostic church, which wouldn't have meant anything to me until we got our Gnostic lesson in the Matrix episode. So I guess do your homework, Keanu Club listeners, and see what that's about, because... Interesting. I didn't do any research into that just because I assumed that you would have been like, oh, and also it means this. We'll be talking about Gnosticism a lot more in Revolutions, and so I'll do some research on that. I've never heard that before. You have to be very careful about what you believe when the word Merovingian is attached to it, because there's been like so much conspiracy theory that has been tied into the Merovingians that the Da Vinci Code people have given it a life of its own. So I'd be immediately skeptical, <laughs> but I will, I will definitely research that. That's really interesting. I'm not really quite sure even what that would mean. Cool. Um. <laughs> now, there's also a lot of other names that are interesting in this. Yeah. Uh, the first one that I wrote down, I think, is Seraph, because, I mean, isn't Seraph, like, angels? And he's kind of a guardian angels of sorts to the Oracle? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so, and Seraph is one of the levels of angel in the hierarchy. And the Seraphim, I think, are the level between the cherubim, which are the lowest level, and the archangels, which are the highest. And so I think the seraphim are kind of the guardians, as it were, the sort of advance guard of the angels. That's cool, because the Oracle will talk about how there's programs running all over the Matrix, and ones that aren't doing what they're supposed to kind of get written off or integrated into the Matrix as being an angel or alien or werewolf or anything, you know? She's like, every time you hear about a vampire or something like that. Are there other programs like you? Oh, well, not like me, but look, see those birds? At some point, a program was written to govern them. A program was written to watch over the trees and the wind, sunrise and sunset. There are programs running all over the place. The ones doing their job, doing what they were meant to do, are invisible. You'd never even know they were here. But the other ones, well... You hear about them all the time. I've never heard of them. Of course you have. Every time you've heard someone say they saw a ghost or an angel. Every story you've ever heard about vampires, werewolves, or aliens is the system assimilating some program that's doing something they're not supposed to be doing. 
but the Merovingian has the two ghosts next to him, like yep. on his team, and a couple werewolves back guarding the keymaker. And I also always took him to be somewhat of a vampire himself, like more of a emotional vampire or like a he deals with information, so like an informational vampire of some kind. Right. And the name of the restaurant that he runs is called Le Vray, which is French for the truth. Again, that is both part in reference to what you're talking about in the literal sense of what he's actually guarding, and also the idea of the Merovingians as kind of the the guardians of the secret of Christianity throughout the Middle Ages and so forth. So yeah, that's that's all that's all there. But I love that too. I love the <laughs> I love the notion of all these weird things that happen being flaws in the Matrix because they first introduce it as like deja vu, and then it's like also aliens, <laughs> you know, like there was a story of like a dragon, like that's that's just the Matrix <laughs> screwing up, and so we just write it off, and yeah. Well, that. Reminded that's me great. of the the Animatrix, right? There was like that haunted house, and I was just like, "Oh, that's exactly right. what she's talking about." <laughs> right? Yeah, it is. Yeah. And she also introduces that idea that programs they could either return to the source or be exiled in the Matrix. So that's a very interesting concept to me. I mean, we see that the most, I suppose, in this one and a little bit in the next one. But the idea that we're going to meet a lot more robots or programs or artificial intelligence, we're going to be dealing more with them in the Matrix now. The Oracle's one, the Merovingian's one, like the Keymaker, you know, the Architect, like there's tons of them, and Neo's going to meet them all. So I really liked that. I thought that was really cool. That's expanding the universe to me, and I really appreciated that. Like, not just introducing that concept, but like running with it. We haven't really talked about it, but like speaking of the expanding universe, this episode that we're recording is about not only the Reloaded, but also Enter the Matrix, which was an Xbox and PS2 game where you played the role of Niobe and Ghost. And they're sort of in and out of the movie, and like they play a couple important roles. We don't really get a full sense of why they're important, really, in this movie, aside from the time that Niobe catches Morpheus off the back of the tractor trailer, which is amazing and really super cool. But in the video game, they had like 40 minutes, which is a crazy amount of time, of added material where basically... We follow them instead of following Neo and Morpheus and Trinity. And they're going to Persephone, and they're going to this place, and they're going to that place, and they're actually the ones who take the transmission from the Osiris that we saw in the Animatrix and bring it back, and that's like sort of how this movie kicks off. So to have this multi-tiered or like, you know, multi-platform, different medium approach to storytelling I think is really cool and I think that you know a lot of those scenes especially when you watch them all back to back on the Blu-ray you know the 40 minutes we see basically the same scene sort of with Persephone and Niobe and then the next scene is Persephone and Ghost or later in the movie we see Smith and Niobe and Smith and Ghost and that doesn't play as well but I really would love to see like a three-hour cut of Reloaded with those 40 minutes worked in because it's all there if you're into this movie and you're into those things of course you're gonna watch a three-hour version of that like there is cool stuff there and i like seeing that expanded universe that bigger story being told in a completely different way yeah most of her stuff is regulated in this film to zion pretty much like we find out that she and morpheus were together and now she's with commander Locke. it's cool in the game they call him deadbolt i guess that was his 
previous name as a hacker or something. Lock and Deadbolt, I see. Uh She becomes really important in the next one, I feel. Maybe the Wachowskis for theatrical cuts wanted to keep her more of the hero of reality as opposed to in the Matrix, maybe we already have enough going on. It's cool that she weaves in and out of this film with Ghost. I feel like she's really badass, and, and I do want more of her, but there's so much else going on. Yeah, you can't, those, you can't remove anything for her, like, add mm-hmm. it in. Yeah, so at least we have the footage for the game. That's really cool that they didn't just shoot it and do nothing with it. Like, at least they shot it and released it, and you can watch that, so that's pretty cool. I can't imagine the Wachowskis going to Jada Pinkett Smith and being like, all right, we're going to take weeks of your life and we're going to shoot all this material that a bunch of like 13-year-old boys are going to see and <laughs> nobody else is going to see. And then like eventually, you know, if we want to put it on a DVD, we'll put it there too. But like, there's a lot of footage there. There's not any real unique sets. Like they're all going places that are already built. So it's not like they're constructing brand new things except for maybe the inside of the logos. But like, there's so much that they shot there that just really, you know, has no place in this movie. Like, it's crazy how much time and effort was spent by everyone involved, you know, on the Blu-ray. Like, we have this gorgeous 1080p whatever of the actual film, and then these are a widescreen format in a full-screen frame that doesn't even take up the full screen. It's just like, oh, you know, like, that's fine. Like, whatever. Like, sorry, guys. Like, we, you, you try. Like, thank you. Everything you're saying is really interesting, because one of the things that I really annoyed me for years about the first Matrix movie is when Switch and the other guy, his name I don't even remember, he's so insignificant, Apoc, Apoc, right? When Switch and Apoc die, and it's like this dramatic moment, and I'm like, who are these people again? Right? Yeah. Like, yep. I was like, oh, right, the blonde one who says three things. I should care, I should cry, what's happening right now? Like, why is this a dramatic moment for these characters who mean nothing to me and barely have said anything? But what's really interesting to me about that is that it's a... It, it's sort of a signal that that's part of kind of how they operate. And this relates to kind of what you were saying earlier, Joey, that there's this assumed world going on that you don't need to know all the information, but they they take for granted, like, even if they haven't told you what the backstory is, these characters have backstories. You should care. They have gone through a lot. And you do kind of get that assumption when they die. Like you you kind of know that they've obviously been through quite a bit because you get the drill of like what it takes to exit the Matrix and go into the real world and so on and so forth. So you do get that. But that criticism that I had is actually, I think, what turns out to be the strength of this story is that the minor characters around the major characters don't feel static. They don't feel lifeless. They feel like each of them does potentially have their own story to tell. You could make a movie about any of these characters. You don't have to. Right, but that's what makes them interesting. Like they're there, you know they've lived through stuff, you know that they're interesting, you know that there's something going on. And whether it has each character has like a, a satisfying beginning, middle, and end doesn't really matter. And so one of the things I think is really cool about sort of developing the Niobe story for not really any significant reason is like it just does that. It just sort of builds this kind of narrative that exists on the side. You can investigate it if you want to, you can like decide to look at that or not. Right. What matters is the Neo story. That's where you should be focused. But like, there's this other stuff going on. It's inessential, but definitely you can feel that development whenever she's in a scene. Like, you know that she matters. You know that something else has gone on with her, and they don't have to just sort of like spell it out for you all the time. It doesn't all all have to be sort of in ridiculous expository dialogue. It's it's a real strength of the way they tell the story, and partly because they had the foresight and advantage of of using modern and new and innovative storytelling 
storytelling techniques and platforms to do it. But to me, that's one of the things that makes this particular intellectual property just so like indispensable and unique and sort of never to be done again. Absolutely. One thing I would like to run through quickly, I have all of the names of the ships and their captains. <laughs> if you want to give a quick, keep it to like, how about the length of a tweet? So like 140 characters, like a one or two sentence, if there's important. We talked about for Animatrix, Osiris is piloted by Thaddeus. So Thaddeus, that's a Greek thing. Thaddeus is. But Osiris, we talked about this when we talked about the Animatrix. Osiris is the god of the underworld in Egyptian myth. So, like, that's also really interesting is that, like, the thing that comes between the first Matrix and this Matrix is Egypt, right? There's, like, an Egyptian reference in, like, a couple of them, and actually in Final Flight of the Osiris, that the Egyptian culture sort of bled into Greek culture. And so, while the Reloaded is, is dealing so much with the Greeks, there's that nod of, like, the influence of Egyptian culture into Greek culture with Osiris. But yeah, I mean, obviously, Osiris is the underworld dweller with the ship treading through the underworld, which looks very much like Hades. Makes perfect sense. Then we have Logos and Niobe, and Logos, you said, was a, a word for Jesus? Is that right? So Logos means something that's really difficult to translate into English. Obviously, it's where we get the word logo from, right? And so logo being a symbol for something else, right? It's translated into the King James and later versions of the Bible as the word. So the, the, the word became man. But the idea is that Logos is the rational mind of God. It's the intelligence of the universe made incarnate in the form of Jesus. Again, there is no good proxy for it in terms of our language and the way that we talk about theology, but the word is misleading. It's good enough, but it doesn't quite get what Logos is really all about. So Logos is used in the Gospel of John, and it comes from a Gnostic tradition, although John was specifically written to attack Gnosticism. But Logos is a word that John borrows from the Gnostics and then recontextualizes it into what we now have as modern Christianity. So Logos is a really big deal, especially when you're talking about something that deals so heavily with the Gnostic Gospels. And Niobe is a Greek tragic figure. Her story is one of that sort of explains human suffering and regret. She's one of the people who had the great misfortune of trying to show up the gods. And Apollo and Artemis, uh, I think, don't quote me on that, but I'm pretty sure it was Apollo and Artemis who took unholy retribution on her. Basically, she compared her children to that of the gods' children. And Apollo and Artemis were like, nope, and they killed them all, <laughs> and then like turned her into stone, and she suffered and, and cried forever for eternity, and that's 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 sort of her That's her really ultra-depressing. Yeah, <laughs> so she's a tragic figure. Obviously, Niobe is somewhat of a tragic figure as well. Then we have the Nebuchadnezzar and Morpheus. Obviously, we can skip that one. Then we have Mjolnir which they call right. Hammer, which is right. Thor, Thor's hammer. Correct. Yep. You guys know that because you've seen the MCU. Yeah. Sure. Uh -huh. And that's piloted by Roland. Then we have Caduceus. Yeah. That I got nothing. Then we have Gnosis, which just looks like Gnostic. G-N-O-S-I-S. Right. So, yeah. So there's another one. So Gnosis is the Greek word for knowledge. The word Gnostic comes from Gnosis. That's its derivation. So that's okay. an obvious okay. nod to like what's, what's, what's really going on here. Then we have Vigilant, which I think is just sort of yeah, self-explanatory. <laughs> that to me is one of those cool sci-fi names for a ship that we see a lot of. I don't, then we have I'm Icarus, sure. who flew right. too close to the sun. Then we have Brahma, which I feel like we talked about on the Little Buddha episode. Yes, we did. Brahma is the godhead of Hinduism, is the unknowable, undefinable god who is the source of the universe. 
of whom all the Hindu deities are a manifestation. Hindu gods are all sort of variations or characteristics of Brahma. Brahma is a is, is the god of gods who cannot be understood or known by human beings because it's way beyond our comprehension. Again, this is obviously, it's, it's bringing in the, the Eastern roots of religion into the scenario so that it can be phased out in exchange for something else. But yep. Then we have There's the Novalis. Novalis. If you're not sure, we can skip that. So those were ten. And then there's concept artwork for the last two, which are both, again, little Buddha reminiscent, the Ganesha, Ganesha, and the Vishnu. Yep. So, yeah, so Ganesha and Vishnu are both major Hindu deities. Ganesha is the god of... Ganesha's the one with the elephant head? You guys know who Ganesha is. Yes. Mm-hmm. Ganesha is the god of compassion. Vishnu is the god of intellect, wisdom, etc. Vishnu is sort of the smart god. But what makes Vishnu interesting is Vishnu is probably appears more in avataric form than any other of the Hindu gods. We talked about avatars. We sure so, did. <laughs> right, so avataring is like a big thing that's happening in the Matrix. It's one of the main symbols that takes place, right? They, they all avatar. Vishnu avatars as Rama, as Lord Krishna. Like every major sort of epic poem in Hinduism that is popular includes an avatar of Vishnu. Clearly that's what the reference is to. So Novalis, I just looked this up, this is interesting, is the pen name of George Philip Friedrich Freer von Hardenberg. Oh, of course. I mean, when you have a name like that, of course you would go with a pen name. He was a poet, author, mystic, and philosopher of Eastern German Romanticism. Hardenberg's professional work and university background, namely his study of mineralogy and management of salt mines in Saxony, was often ignored by his contemporary readers. The first studies showing important relations between his literary and professional works started in the 1960s. So he's a philosopher of some kind. I never even noticed that Novalis was one of the names, honestly, of one of the ships. So well picked out. And uh, Good job, IMDb. So I have have a lot (laughs) of other trivia that I'm going to drop at the end. I want to get into those three big dialogue scenes and really talk about those. Is there anything else you want to talk about before we get into those, Mike? Did we mention, even on the last podcast, Morpheus? So yeah, Morpheus is a Greek god of dreams. It's where we get morphine from, right? So the idea idea of falling asleep. Dreaming. It's one of the few explicitly Greek references in the first movie. There's so many more in the second one. But yeah, that's one of the nods of kind of where it's going. But it was an obvious name for that character because he wakes Neo up from his imaginary dream of of reality. And so then that ties in in a whole lot of ways to at the end of the movie when Morpheus says, I had a dream, but now that dream is gone from me, which is alluded to in the book of Daniel, where King Nebuchadnezzar, which again lumps back in, has a dream of the golden image that Daniel interprets for him. So like, I don't know if this is offensive or not, but like Morpheus is the Martin Luther King sort of of this universe, right? Like he has a dream. He has like this vision. Oh, like nice. Good. He has okay. this guy, yeah. like he, he sees a brighter future. He knows how to get there. I mean, his whole thing is dreams like i mean all of the matrix is pretty much dreams but and his big lecture on uh, ed zion is very sort of like martin luther king at the lincoln memorial you could look at it that way you could also see that as moses with the ten commandments right looking out on zion so to speak but it's not offensive because frankly king saw himself as a religious figure he saw himself as a modern day prophet as someone who is carrying on the mosaic tradition if you're going to do that with morpheus then you're going to have some cross 
crossover with Martin Luther King. It's just inevitable. So whether it's intentional or not, I think it's it, the inevitability of it is, is is for sure. I also do like that that Zion scene is like I don't I don't know if it was supposed to be edgy back then, like with that dance scene, like that rave. Compare that to Sense Eight, which is on Netflix, which is the Wachowski series. There are orgies in that show. I mean, that's sort of maybe a spoiler alert. But like, there are orgies in that show. That, like, put this to shame. This is PG rated compared to what is on Sense Eight. The Wachowskis have up their game. Do you think this is what humanity's like? Let me show you what humanity's like. I have to say, I gotta defend that scene for a second though, because I also like roll my eyes like crazy at that scene. Obviously, it's like it's super like 90s even though it was 2001 when neo and trinity are banging in a cave yeah the whole thing and obviously it's the most derided scene in all the matrix in all three of the movies and and people hate it and i completely understand that on the other hand again this is part of the greek tradition this is part of what makes this a very greek mythic movie as distinct from the other two the greeks were really concerned with like the humanity of human beings and and especially our sort of flesh-based humanity as a one-off thing that we get just this one life to to fully engage in our humanity and we are different from the gods in some kind of fundamental way and we may be lowly but like our material experience of the world matters and like obviously that's a theme of the matrix humanity versus the machines thing and i think just kind of in showing that in the most sort of tribal primal naked human kind of way is really important like i think it's a, it's an important moment to sort of express this is what makes us different from machines is that people like dance around barefoot and naked and that is humanity at its most pure and primal. And it's also and... something that Tank alludes to in the first movie. When he's explaining what Zion is, he's basically like, that's where people party. Like, that's what we are down there. That's what the difference is between us and them. And that's really all you have, right? You're living in the subterranean world. All you can do, like the most human expression is to party, like to dance. There's nothing else to do. There's no other joy to be had. That's all it is. And so if there's something that's worth fighting for, like this is what it is. This is what you're fighting for. This is why you're deciding not to be a slave to a machine is to be this. Is it the best executed? No. <laughs> but like in terms of the necessity of that scene, I, I don't think you can have the movie without it. It's the Wachowskis being their normal oversexed weird selves for sure. But the scene itself that's bother me. The scene itself is, I think, incredibly necessary to tell the story appropriately. So I don't think it's out of place. It's an annoying rave scene that goes on for too long. There's a lot of extras there who are, like, clearly professional ravers who are like... (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> Wish I had some glow sticks. Well, now, they had yeah, over a thousand extras for that scene. So which no matter, is ins- insane. So you, you can't yeah. have a 100% <laughs> success ratio. Watching the, the sheer number of actual extras in that scene is absolutely astonishing because you never see that. They're always CGI replications of like a hundred people these days, you know, and that's really impressive. Well, that's what I liked about it too is these are all the humans. Like, this is it. Like, this is all. <laughs> these are all that's left. Well, that's depressing, you know? like, yeah. I think that's pretty important. Bunch there, of raven douchebags. That's all that. we got. And also, Zion itself, you know, everyone lives in, like, a prison cell. Zion is just, for the most part, another, we'll find out, another level of control to some degree. Which like, I don't fully understand, which, but we'll get to that with the architect. But yeah. yeah. We will get to that later, so, yeah. Yeah, I like what this is saying thematically, even if it's not the most well-executed part of the film, is that the cavemen part everything comes across a lot better this screening i don't know if it's part of doing keanu club or what it is or if i just hadn't seen this in a while and i think it holds up you're enlightened well, now <laughs> i do like its inclusion whereas earlier before previous screenings i was sort of maybe fast forward through some of this stuff <laughs> 
You still can. You know it's there. So the first really big... I guess the Zion scene is a big scene because we have Morpheus's monologue. We have his speech to the masses. I stand here without fear because I remember. I remember that I am here not because of the path that lies before me, but because of the path that lies behind me. I remember that for 100 years we have fought these machines. I remember that for 100 years they have sent their armies to destroy us. And after a century of war, I remember that which matters most. We are still here! But the first real meaty scene that I want to dig into is when Neo meets up with the Oracle. And this, I was realizing, is only probably the second time he's met with the Oracle, which is crazy, because we talked about how much time there probably is between movies, and I'm sure that she's busy, but he's the one. Why are you not, like, hanging out, like, (laughs) you could have, like, you know, Sunday dinner with the Oracle. That's a little weird. It makes it more important that this is the first time he's seen her since he became the one. And we find out just how dangerous it is to meet with the Oracle, too. Things have escalated since. She now has this bodyguard. So where was he last time? Last time it was cookies and children and other people in there in a waiting room. And now it's like, you got to go through me to find her. And this is a different actress, too, right? Doing a very good impression. No, not yet. Not yet. Oh, it's in the third one. So it's a different different actress. actress. What's weird is it's a different actress in Enter the Matrix. Okay. But it's the same Oracle from the first movie because this actress, this woman died in the middle. So in terms of the making of these movies, there was pre-production for a year and then shooting took a year and then post-production took a year. So making these two movies, and I'm assuming also that lumps in Enter the Matrix, was a three-year ordeal. And somewhere in the middle, the woman who played the Oracle from the first movie died. And so between the second and the third movies, we get a new actress and it kind of works because it is a computer program and there's that scene like, this is not the Oracle that I know, and that's something we'll get into there, but this is still the same one from the first movie. And this is also a scene that I really remember, I don't know why, maybe because it made me angry because they were making fun of a movie that I loved, but I think the MTV Movie Awards parodied this scene really hard around this time, or I remember this that scene being right. yeah. <laughs> parodied by like you know a couple different things, and I was just you know in my little 14 or 15 year old mind like, they can't make fun of a movie that I like, ah, this isn't fair, this isn't fun, but you know. I've grown up. It's fine. It's all good. But what I liked about the scene, which I didn't even notice in the movie, I just read in the trivia, is that she offers him candy, and she offers him a blue candy and a red candy, and of course he takes the red candy. That's such a like a nice little detail that, you know, in the first movie there's cookies, and this one there's candy, and he, once again he basically takes the red pill, let's go down this rabbit hole, and see what you have to say. Really interesting. I, I never even noticed that. This is... Again, a very, very frustrating conversation for Neo because he has all the answers. Like, he doesn't learn anything. I can't imagine how frustrating it would be to talk to the Oracle because she knows everything, but you also at the same time know everything. And she's not giving you the answers. She's like, all she's saying is, like, you already know everything. Well, he figures a few things out. He knows that she's a program from the machine world. I feel like that's a huge revelation here, right? Like, the Oracle isn't human. You know, and like in the first movie, we weren't sure. Was she, is she sort of like one of, you know, a potential, as they were called? She clearly has powers of some kind. And it seems as if Neo has gained the sight. Like she confirms, like he can see into the future of the Matrix code somehow, even if he doesn't understand what he's seeing. It is frustrating, but she is dropping answers here and there. They're just hard to find. And it takes a couple of viewings, even for me, to figure out what she's talking about. Well, he's looking at the world without time, is what she says, right? What's also frustrating, this is, again, not frustrating, but it's another thing that Neo has to sort of deal with, 
is that in this reality, and again, this is something that he deals with with the architect, there is no free will, essentially. Like, it's all determined. Or maybe there is free will, but that's determined. He says, like, are you telling me that I need to make a decision like whether Trinity lives or dies? And she says, you've already made the decision, now you just need to understand why. And later in the movie, he basically has the same conversation with the architect. And so I don't know if you should look at that like he doesn't have choice over his future, or he does have choice over his future, and because of that, there can only be one way that it goes. Again, this is Greek philosophy stuff, right? This is Platonic, Socratic philosophy about free will and and the nature of existence and and all that sort of thing. And so while the first Matrix dealt with how do you know the world isn't a dream, this one is delving into the much headier concept of how do you know that the world exists at all, and if it does, what are the rules of it, and do those rules coexist with free will, and is that possible? All this stuff is happening, and so Neo is kind of like forced, because as he learns more about the world that he is inhabiting, the questions get more and more difficult to avoid. So in the first one, he's trying to avoid kind of the nature of reality and trying to, you know, sort of stay in his happy place and avoid the fact of the Matrix, and he confronts that and throws up and whatever, and now as he's learning more about how things work, there's inevitable questions that go along with it, and one of them is, can free will really exist? Or is it even relevant whether it does or not? So one of the things that is being explored here is essentially the notion that is the illusion of free will indistinct from free will itself? In other words, if free will appears to exist, does that mean that free will does by in effect exist? So in other words, you can know that some god wrote a script where everything you're going to do forever is already determined, right? That can exist as one fact. And it seems that that's sort of one of the ideas that that's what happens in the Matrix, that it's all kind of been designed by an architect, right? On the other hand, if you don't know what that script is, then do you have free will because you are still making choices. Right. Whether or not you could have made a different choice is beside the point. You still are making a choice. It is still something that is going on. So because you have a certain relationship to the grand design, which is a temporal cause and effect relationship, right? does free will still exist? And and I think basically that is what he's being challenged to confront first with the Oracle and then later in a much more profound way and a much more immediate way with the architect when he's sort of, when the truth is right in front of his face and he has to reconsider what his truth is, which is basically what the last scene between him and Morpheus is all about. Does that make things worse or better? (laughs) I don't know. I mean, I don't know if there are right or wrong answers really. Like that's sort of the point, right? Yeah. Now that you said the whole he eats the red candy thing, like it's again, it's going further down the rabbit hole. It's into that next level of his analysis of his own reality. And one of the themes of the Matrix is the more that you develop a closer understanding of your reality, the more mastery you have over it. Even if you're not able to put into any sort of proxy context what your reality is, even if you're not able to create a, a model of what it looks like, if you have a sort of implicit understanding of reality, then you can begin to have a great greater mastery over it. We start to see a hint of that in the last scene between Neo and the and the Sentinels, when his mastery over all reality starts to blend together into one supreme control over the external world and the and the matrix world at the same time. I don't know if it's like the big thing to take away from the scene or just the big thing that Neo takes away. 
But I think the last question he maybe asks the Oracle is, what happens if I can't? What happens if I fail? And she's mm-hmm. like, well, Zion is going to, Zion will fall. Yeah. And it's just like, oh, you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's literally all world. resting on you. Right. Yeah, like, <laughs> exactly. you know, there's, there's no pressure here, but like, if you if you fail, we're all gone. So like, it's up to you. And it's just like, oh, okay. And then she leaves and then Agent Smith show up. It's just like, this is just something else I have to deal with now. Like, not only do I have to deal with all the machines in the real world, but I also have to deal with this asshole. Like, it's just, there's so much that he has to deal with and he's just one guy. Right. And again, I, I, one of the things I love about that in terms of the Socratic tradition is that if I, I don't know if you guys have ever read any of the Socratic dialogues by Plato. So Plato wrote a whole bunch of dialogues which star Socrates is one side of it. So if you've ever taken like a beginner level philosophy class, you'd probably have read one or two. Basically, that's how they work. And do we get college credit for this? Yeah, you do. Yeah. So it's, it's basically like if you've ever read a Socratic dialogue, like the, the, the talk between the Oracle and Neo is basically like that. Like some guy walks up to Socrates, asks him a really complicated question. Socrates takes him on this like three page whirlwind of reasoning around that question. And then all of them end with Socrates being like, well, gotta go, and just, like, walks away, and that's it, and there's no satisfying answer for <laughs> for, for the person. It's, like, it's funny, like, it really is, but that really is how they basically play out, and that is almost verbatim, basically, a, a Socratic dialogue that he's having with the Oracle there, right down to the, like, well, see you later, right? You gotta go fight these guys now, I guess. I'm gonna go have lunch. Adios. What's kind of crazy about when Smith shows up is He's got a lot of dialogue too. Like he's gonna drop knowledge on me oh, yeah. as well. Oh yeah. We're like we're, you know, before we fight, like he's like, I got something to say too <laughs> uh, about purpose. As you well know, appearances can be deceiving, which brings me back to the reason why we're here. We're not here because we're free. We're here because we're not free. There's no escaping reason, no denying purpose. Because as we both know, without purpose, we would not exist. It is purpose that created us. Purpose that connects us. Purpose that pulls us, that guides, that drives us. It is purpose that defines us. Purpose that binds us. We are here because of you, Mr. Anderson. We're here to take from you what you tried to take from us. Purpose. And I'm going to say the word purpose a lot just so you understand what I'm talking about. Purpose. And it's kind of funny that that (laughs) conversation comes right after because... The conversation between Neo and Oracle is like, you know, she says, we're all here to do what we're all here to do. You know, everybody's got their purpose. Like, we, we are each a cog in the wheel. And even Morpheus will say later something where it's like, Neo might be the one, but we each have a part to play. And Smith seems to be searching for meaning and purpose. And it's like, Neo is denying his purpose at this point. And it's like, the more he denies it, the stronger Smith is going to get. And there's even this cool shot from above when they're fighting where they form like a yin and a yang right that's right yeah yeah, yeah, so it's like it's all really interesting how it escalates and it elevates and it all ties together as it goes along couldn't the oracle have tipped neo off like hey you got something big coming up now just get ready for it that she's literally walking away from a fight right like wouldn't that have been nice of her but if that's not enough then i think probably maybe the next scene or like the next scene of note that's not like a linking scene is them going to the Merovingian. Hey, like we just have this crazy dialogue scene with the Oracle, this crazy dialogue fight scene with Smith, and now we're going to go to another scene. It's so much to take in, and it's kind of amazing. Uh, he goes off on his big cause and effect speech, too. He's got a hard-on for that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he loves the way that plays out. You see, there is only one constant 
One universal, it is the only real truth. Causality. Action, reaction. Cause and effect. Everything begins with choice. No, wrong. Choice is an illusion created between those with power and those without. Causality. There is no escape from it. We are forever slaves to it. Our only hope, our only peace is to understand it, to understand the why. Why is what separates us from them, you from me. Why is the only real source of power? Without it, you are powerless. And this is how you come to me, without why, without power. I just love a world where the twins, like, the Merovingian says something that's, you know, esoteric and, like, highfalutin and, like, maybe doesn't make any sense and they laugh at it. I just love a world where he's just, like, saying crazy things all day and they understand none of it and they're just like, oh, we should probably laugh now. You're so smart. You're so charming, Merovingian. We're here with you. We're your number one and number two fans. I love that character. The, the Merovingian to me, like that, that's one of the things when I keep going back to this being a really weird movie, like I just, that character is just so, it's, it's a bizarre character, but like it makes sense as a character and like the way that he's like this exaggerated French chauvinist sleazebag. It's just like, it's such a, what, what other modern action movie do you have anything like that character? It's so indulgent and weird and so well, well personified and like, yeah, those moments where they're laughing at him is, I, oh, it's great stuff. He works on a lot of different levels too. Here he works as sort of the businessman, the overachiever who has it all and is just like super smug, like the Gordon Gecko, if you will, or something like that. When they go to his castle in the Alps, that's where I get like the big Dracula vibe off of him a lot when he sicks his servants on Neo. Speaking of Dracula, Monica Bellucci back from Bram Stoker's That's Dracula, right, that's so. right, yeah. Yes, I love Monica absolutely. Bellucci, yeah. And in the next one, we're definitely going to get more of that hell vibe off of him when he's, like, lurking in the underworld of the Matrix and taking refuge down there. So it's just really cool how this one character can slide in and out of all these different roles. He's, very, he's a very resourceful character, and they, they were very smart in crafting him the way they did. And he certainly, I mean, he, if Smith is the Judeo-Christian devil, the Merovingian is the Greek Hades, and, and, there, and there's a distinction between those two characters. They have very different MOs, even though you know, the devil really is the inheritor of the idea of Hades in a lot of ways. The Wachowskis clearly understand that like they function in a very different kind of a way. These are different characters, and so having them as different characters in the context of their movies was important to them. One of the things that the Merovingian does that is very Hades-like is have this psychological mastery over people that he just completely understands the way that people work and is able to do things knowing full well what the outcome is going to be, right? And so the whole thing of him talking about the cake right it's just this total hades moment because hades was always doing stuff and making deals absolutely knowing how it was going to play out like one of the most famous ones is orpheus and eurydice so orpheus falls in love with eurydice and and after their wedding she ends up being chased by this it's usually a satyr and she falls into a snake pit and she dies and she goes to the underworld so orpheus decides to to violate the laws of nature and like goes to the underworld to get her back and like plays his, he's the greatest musician in the world. So he plays his music and he charms his way all the way to Hades and he makes this deal with Hades and Hades says to him, yeah, okay, you're really good at music. You clearly feel very strongly about this. You really came to hell just to get your wife back. Sure. You go ahead. You take her out of the underworld, but under one condition, 
you can never look back and make sure she's still following you. You have to trust that I'm sending her after you, right? And he agrees, and him being, you know, susceptible to human faults, they get almost out into the overworld, and at the very last moment, uh, Orpheus just can't trust himself anymore and can't trust that she's still behind him, and he looks back, and there she is, and then at that moment she gets dragged back to hell, and that's the end of their story. And like it's, you know, it's, that, it's that sort of thing that I'm, we see with the Merovingian throughout, which is that just completely fucking with people psychologically because he completely understands how people work. And it's really fun that it's done in the context of computer programming, that he like understands how the programs work, right? So he's like a hacker, so he has a complete understanding of the ones and zeros and how they all operate and is able to completely manipulate people like the way that he wants to to get his get his own way i love that whole character i love that whole side story even though it doesn't amount to very much it's a great and and sort of indulgent (laughs) i also Uh, like that i mean it's a little bit of a spoiler but i like that he survives revolution yeah 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 yeah. that he's still around (laughs) to do his thing right (laughs) and apparently one of the oldest programs too so that that's what they and say. Again, that, so that goes back, and again, that goes back. That's that's the whole Hades thing, right? He is the god of death, so he survives death. He is ancient beyond beyond ancient, so the worlds may begin and end, but he is always there. I also love this idea that <laughs> programs are latching on to sort of ancient human philosophies yeah. <laughs> and to survive exile in a prison they created for us, and then now they're sort of trapped in, or else they have to return to the source. And we haven't really talked about the source we'll get to the source with the <laughs> architect but you know i imagine if you don't want to go back there it can't be all that great for everybody you know especially if you are an ai with these personalities well, that's a really, i think that's what the issue it's a really is. great thing that you're bringing up there though because because that is one of the weirder elements of religion that religion tends to sort of overlook or ignore when it does it when it actually engages this question it always ends in weird places but yeah why does God give a crap? Why not just be rid of us? Why do you need to send Jesus down to, like, you know, renew the contract that you made with us? Like, who cares? We're nothing to you. Just get rid of us and move on. Why are you bothering so much with this creation that is clearly problematic to you? The Matrix really does explore that idea in really interesting and profound ways that, like, nobody else even touches, right? Which is, why would the creators of this thing even care in the first place? What is in it for them? What is possibly in it for God to even bother with us anymore? What does he get out of this? I think it's that extrapolated to everything. Like, this whole movie is just about why. Uh-huh. It's just, I'm trying to understand why. No matter what you're talking about, whether it's that or anything else, you have the answers. Like, that's not the difficult thing. Like, the difficult part is, like, trying to figure out why. Like, you know what happens. It's just, why does that happen? Like, that's what drives people crazy, and that's what, like, actually creates conversation. Mm-hmm. I also, even though she's given not nearly as much to do as Merovingian, Persephone kind of kills it in this movie yeah. uh, in her sort of demanding of kisses, which yeah. is great, and, yeah. you know, shooting her shooting her vampires. But also, just the one line, like, I think maybe my favorite line in the entire movie, where she says, she wasn't kissing your face, my love. Like, it's yeah. just the way that she, like, knows it, and is like, not okay with it, but okay with it. And just, Merv's gonna be Merv, and, like, I have no control over him, but, you know, <laughs> I basically hold the power, and I can get him to do what I want. And, you know, Monica Bellucci not doesn't have a ton to do. She's pretty much there because she's beautiful. Yeah. But at the same time, she's great. Yep. She makes the most out of a very minor, tiny part. But yeah, no, I agree. I think she's... That one scene is great. She plays a bit of a, more of a role in the video game footage, too. So, uh, you know, at least she got a bit more to do there with Jada. Jada Pinkett, there's that kissing scene with Jada Pinkett Smith 
in the video game, so that was kind of interesting. And we get confirmation from her in the video game that Ghost is in love with Trinity, pretty much, and mm. that Trinity will never love Ghost back, which is, like, kind of a heartbreaking thing. Like, that's such a... That's what you were saying, I think, earlier, John, that, like, all these characters have beginnings, middles, and ends, and we just don't really know that Ghost is ever going to be in love with Trinity because he's barely in the movie, but he's got this whole thing, and, like, in the video game, they, you know, wake up from the Matrix together, and she's like, hey, like, let's get you a girlfriend. He's like, I'm good. It's just, like, heartbreaking. And we see these little moments and then for Persephone to be like, why do you love her? Or like, you know, she's never going to love you. And it's just like, oh, wow. Like, oh, God. He mentions some, I don't remember the saint by name, but he talks about becoming celibate. And that is, right. you know, <laughs> right, right. that's yeah. what he kind of latches on to. And that's what he represents. And that's what gives him the strength. Because really, how do you compete against Neo? Like, when she's in love with the savior of all mankind. Who happens to look like Keanu Reeves. I mean, come on. Yeah. And then, so after the Merovingian, we have what might be the greatest action scene in cinema history, oh, maybe? so good. Yeah. The freeway scene where they literally so built, like, a two-and-a-half-mile freeway out in the middle of the desert somewhere. Even before the freeway scene, there's, like, an amazing fight with the weapons inside of that little stairwell. It's a very interesting little set, but, like, it's a very confined fight in that. But very cool, very cool. Yeah, and then launches right into the freeway thing, is, so is, there's some back-to-back action. Is that the same stairwell, though, from the first movie? Is it relit to be... Because in the first movie, I feel like it's the same we're, stairwell. We're in the first movie. The scene when they are going down the stairs and Neo sees the cat and he's like... No, like, that's in, like, a building. That's, like, okay. in a, a high-rise. All right, okay. For some reason, I thought that that exterior, the shot was of the two stairs coming down no, together. No, because this is, right. this is, I think Mike said, like, this is basically where the Merovingian lives, right? Right, right like, yeah. It's his little mansion. Little mansion that just overlooks the Alps or wherever he wants it to overlook. He can just open a the door and it becomes Alps. whatever. So that's great. And I guess the big thing in there is that Neo, you know, instead of just stopping three agents' bullets, he stops like six machine guns worth of bullets. The power is once again amplified, but also he bleeds. They're all computer programs, but he is just a man. And in theory, they could kill him permanently, but obviously they don't because he's way more powerful than all of them. And then there's the freeway scene, which is just ridiculous. Yeah, the information superhighway, I guess, is where <laughs> inside a computer program, right? I'll say the one thing I don't really understand, and it's not about the action here, is that in the first movie, Trinity talks to Tank and says, I need to learn how to fly this chopper. And that's like basically us learning through Neo, oh, like Tank or the operator or whatever can teach us anything on the fly. Like you just call him and just say, I need to know how to do this and you can just plug it in. So she calls Link and she's like, I need to know how to hotwire this motorcycle. And then the keymaker, because he's the keymaker, has a key for the motorcycle. But, like, we see in the first movie that it takes, like, eight seconds right. for her to learn something forever. Like, no, just, like, let her learn how to hotwire this, just in case they need it again. And the keymaker, after he does his thing and isn't around anymore, just in case he's not there. They have, like, eight seconds. I just think that's kind of, like, I never thought about that before this watching. But I was like, you know, you could, you could just let her learn how to do it. That's true. There are some logic plot holes. Uh, in but the it is sort of just, I, I guess, like a funny moment that it's just like, oh, the keymaker has, you know, more than one purpose in life. He's right. he's ultimately <laughs> right. going to give Neo the right key and get into that door at the right time. But he's also got the key for the Ducati. Right. He can also make keys. That's just, that's <laughs> kind of the name, right? I don't know if they ever say, is he a programmer? I don't know if they refer to him as a programmer. Or is he just another program? He's a program. Can... Yeah. He's, yeah, he's a, a program. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Exactly. But it is kind of cool, yeah, that he can just sort of whip out a key for anything, any door, and slip between the programs of the Matrix and things like that. Uh, one thing I really get out of this scene is how powerful Morpheus has become. 
I guess seeing Neo in action and knowing that he was right and that he is the one has given him like this mind over body strength that mm. we haven't seen before. Yeah. Like he kicks so much ass in this movie after getting his ass beaten by Agent Smith in the first one. That's right. He is just like That's a good point. You know, that sword fight in the car with the ghost <laughs> was really crazy and he takes on an agent or two here. It's yeah. just really cool like to that's, see him do all that. In the first movie, everybody from Trinity to Morpheus to Cypher are they're all like, if you see an agent you do what we do, you run, you run your ass off. And in this movie, Morpheus takes an agent on one on one without really blinking an eye. Trinity takes an agent on one on one. It's like Neo has risen everybody up to his level, or at least give them the confidence, like, hey, like, maybe I can beat them. Yeah, and I think that's part of the Christ-like nature of Neo. He gives in his disciples the ability to do things that they never thought possible, and it's perfectly logical within the framework of the narrative that that would be happening. I don't think it's a contradiction of, like, we used to be afraid, so we ran away, but now we have Neo, so now we're not afraid anymore, and... And then when all else fails in both situations, Neo can just swoop in like Superman and save the day both times. You know, you're not going to necessarily beat an agent, but, like, Neo's there, he's got your back. Like, there's two sets of footprints, and then there's just one set of footprints. In the interest of time, let's deal with the architect, as that is the meat and potatoes of this movie. Whew, this scene. Oh, God. Yeah. (laughs) What do you make of it, and what do you want to know, and, like, how do you... What's... So the, the, Okay, so my big question is what he's saying that this is the sixth iteration of The Matrix... This is the most advanced that Neo has ever been. He sort of asks the right questions sooner than all of his predecessors. But what I don't understand really, and he says about the source about you can either go in this one door and save Trinity and then Zion will fall and like everybody you know will die, or you can go in this other door and return to the source and pick 23 people from the Matrix. So the first question I have, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to do this whole thing, and I want, I'm going to list a lot of questions out. Is he picking programs, or is he picking human batteries out of the field? Probably that. So he picks 16 women, 7 men, to rebuild Zion. So here's what I don't understand. So Zion is linked to the Matrix, and that when you reset that, you reset Zion too? So like, the, I thought that they were separate. Yeah, no, so this is this is where things start to get like too heady I think for a lot of people and a lot of people miss this really important element and it's pretty well spelled out by the time that Neo stops the Sentinels with his hand right the real world is not a real world either <laughs> like the the matrix is, is turtles one, all the way down right the matrix is one iteration of a reality it is a device it is a prison it is used to distract etc but the real world in which Zion exists is also not real. So there is no such thing as a fundamentally real world. That is the big new revelation. That's the second red pill, right? That's that. That's further down the rabbit hole. The point or, of that well, scene... There, there the could scene be a real world, we just don't see it, right? Like, it could be one more layer removed? But, or is it but just infinitely defeating? So the thing about, like, the first Matrix is it's the answer to that question, how do you know you're not dreaming? What if you're dreaming? What if this is all a fake world? And you wake up and then you're in the real world, right? But it never asked the question then, like, well, how do you know that's the real world? and you're not dreaming in some other pod somewhere and dreaming this world that it's, you know, it's like, so there's two fake worlds that you're imagining. You don't know that either. So what the architect is basically saying to Neo is that you have created this false understanding of what reality is. That's the lesson that you've refused to learn is that you're not free outside of the matrix. It's just a different kind of prison. It's a different place it's maybe a higher reality than the matrix is but it's not the reality that doesn't really exist so once he has that information that he understands that the whole thing down to his 
own existence is part of a grand scheme, again, once he has a more intimate connection with reality, whatever reality is, even if he doesn't understand it, he has more mastery over it. And that's why we see him taking out the Sentinels with his hand, doing something that he's supposed to only be able to do inside the Matrix, outside of the Matrix. Okay. Like, I get that. I mean, I just, it's, again, I'm going to keep using this word because in, in, in so many different ways, but like, it's frustrating that the movies have been lying to us. Well, they haven't, though. The, the movies... they, I mean, up until, well, because you don't know that it's not real. You look at Tank in the first movie, and you're like, that guy is a real person. Like, he's flesh and blood. Yes. He's, that's He's bragging about that, but, like, he's not real either. No, they are real. Like, they are flesh, no, they are flesh and blood. They are real. <laughs> they are real. Level of consciousness is what can keep going. Right. <laughs> It's closer to what we would think is real than the clearly artificial reality of the Matrix. But what the architect is trying to tell Neo is that all realities are in some way artificial. There's not a fundamentally pure expression or understanding of reality. It's always somehow biased by something, right? So he's not saying that the material world is the same as the Matrix. He's not saying that they're both... Okay. They're both just computer programs. What he's saying is there's this whole grand reality with various levels of reality and consciousness. You have now been able to experience two of them. Those two realities have some correlation that you're not even aware of, right? That the matrix exists for a reason that correlates to that reality, which itself is a design that is also malleable and can also be changed and can also be rewritten in some way. In other words, the reason that the Matrix works is because that's also how the real world works. It is basically a grand design. It is basically a, a coding. And that, again, is consistent with a lot of theologies, that that's basically how a lot of theologies look at the universe, that it's the coding of God, right? And the architect himself is the, is the god of Gnosticism. It's the, it's the deceiver god. It is the guy who created the universe and stuck us in it, but is not our redeemer. It's not the god that we should be worshiping. It's not the god that Jesus came to tell us about. It's a different god. It's a it's a creator who just is concerned with creation and nothing but else. But did he actually make the Matrix? Because doesn't he basically say, like, not verbatim, but he's basically saying, like, I'm too smart to ever make something as fucked up as the Matrix. <laughs> right. He says that he is the designer, but it wasn't until, like, the third or fourth iteration that the Oracle came upon a solution that would work where in which 99.9% of the humans would accept the programming if they were given a choice, even if like on a subconscious level without realizing it. But that's what created the systemic anomaly, which was Neo, who was basically a remainder of an equation that isn't quite solved yet, but like almost perfect. So it's the imperfections in the reality that make us accept it, right? Like if the matrix was too perfect, we would realize that we were in a program, but because there's misery and human suffering and questioning, why does God let this happen to us and things, Correct. you know, that sort of level. Right. That, that's then we'll accept. Why, right. uh-huh. And he looks like a God, right? Like he looks like God. Like, I mean, the God we know, he's a white, a white dude with white hair and a white suit. He's, he's the classic kind of Greek version of Zeus mixed with Colonel Sanders. Like that's basically... You know, <laughs> oh, man. That's, that's basically who he is. But yeah, it's the white, the, the old guy with the white beard. I mean, of course, that's who we're supposed to be thinking of. He also has the TVs in his little, you know, man cave of a of an office right. that he. It's, it's probably it's pretty much assumed that he was watching that 
interrogation scene from the first movie, right? Where we sort right. of zoom into these <laughs> yeah, TVs. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And everything else since then. Right. Yeah, because... Which is kind of interesting that this isn't, this is nothing new to him. Like, he's been waiting for Neo to get to him. That's the whole plan, is Neo will come to you, just wait, and then he will... Every other time, I, I assume he has gone back to the source and chosen humans to repopulate Zion, and it's, this is the one time, I take it, that he's disobeyed. And it's a, clever, it's a clever gag as well, because again, it's one of those things that is assumed in sort of Christian theology, but never really fleshed out, which is that like God just sees everything, like knows what's happening all the time, and now we have a physical manifestation of that, which is a guy with like a lot of TV screens, He's just watching everything unfold, <laughs> right? Like in his little chamber, and in some way, like that's kind of how we're supposed to think that, like God sees stuff, like the billions of TV screens that he's looking at. So that's how he knows what's happening. So it's kind of a funny reference to an abs- a kind of a absurd idea in theology, but it makes sense, and especially. Again, when th- this is what the Gnostic God and the mainstream Christian God have in common, which is that they're basically controlling freaks and want to have control over every element of everyone's destiny. But in this case, we have a God who is flawed and all-knowing, but deliberately trying to throw us off course. Like, there's something about him that is trying to rob us of our freedom and only the Gnostic savior can give us true freedom, right? That's what Gnosticism is all about. So so that bleeds directly into what revolutions deals with. So I won't get too heavily into that. But one of the things that led to Christianity was a concept called apocalypticism, which was a school of Jewish thought. And what, what's really interesting is that he tells Neo that this is the sixth iteration, right? So the number six in early Christian and Jewish symbolism Oh, I didn't even think we I didn't know we were going to get to this level. This is amazing. Keep going. So so the number the number 6 is a, is a is a number of imperfection. It's it's a number of incompleteness. So it's it's not a full cycle. A full cycle is 7. Is that why the devil's 666? Yes. So and, and and a full cycle is 7. So that's why there's 7 days of the week, right? The 7 deadly sins, the 7 sacraments, the 7, you name it. Christianity accepts that only when something is presented in a in a sequence of 7 is it perfect, is it godly. If it's not seven, if it's six, then it's imperfect. So the idea that this is the sixth iteration, that we're on the verge of a seventh, right? That there's there's the, the, the possibility of a new era, a seventh age of man, that would presumably, according to the, the Christian symbolism, would be sort of the perfect era. And that each one is slightly better, right? And we're watching the sixth one is not a coincidence. Apocalypticism was this idea that became really popular around the hundred years or so leading up to Jesus. And Jesus was an apocalypticist as well, which was this idea that was developed among Jewish rabbis to try and deal with this idea that if the Hebrews are the chosen people of God, then why does everything suck for them all the time? Why is Judea constantly being conquered? Why is it under Roman occupation right now? Why are we constantly being enslaved? So the apocalypticists said that the reason for it was that God was on the verge of a world-altering event. In other words, that like this was all leading up to the master plan, the big revelation. Apocalypse means revelation. And the big revelation would be the new day, the new era, the new age of Jewish prosperity. And the Messiah would be the person to lead you into that new era. One of the things that I think is also being alluded to and explored in this conversation with the architect is that this is the end of the sixth age. This is the real God is about to unveil his true plan and a new age of mankind is about to emerge out of the aftermath of this. What the apocalypsists believed was really that there was going to be an end of the world. There was going to be a cataclysmic event that would essentially unshackle everybody from Roman occupation and 
this new kingdom of God would take over and rule the earth. But eventually, they, most of them channeled their idea into Jesus and decided that Jesus was okay. a new kind of an apocalypse, that it was through Jesus that the Roman Empire would be toppled and that the Jewish people would be freed and dominant once again. If you consider the fact that Christianity was a Jewish sect and became the dominant force in the Western world, they were right. <laughs> and it really was ultimately what basically toppled the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire turned into the Vatican. It turned into a Christian empire. Christianity won out in the end. But you can see Christianity began as this Jewish apocalyptic sect. So they were sort of right. And they just sort of reconfigured the way that they thought that would pan out. But that's clearly what's going on here. So introducing it as the sort of last chapter and revolutions is a play on the word revelation. It is the book of Revelation with Gnosticism thrown in, played out in a sci-fi setting. That is also, I think, the big heart of what is going on in that conversation with the architect. Got all that? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I guess the question is, if they're on the verge of, you know, the seventh iteration or whatever that would have been like to complete the cycle, is what Neo does in not resetting, does that become the seventh cycle? When we jump ahead to the end of Revolutions and they basically have rebuilt the Matrix and, you know, Neo saves the day... Is that the seventh? It's not the seventh that could have been if he walked through the one door, but it's kind of the seventh that he created by walking through the other door? Right, it's the seventh that always was. Jesus was a new way, right? Jesus was a new alternative, a new option. In other words, the, the Jewish people had the options on the table, and Jesus presented a new option, a, a, a different way out. They basically were like, we'll either die or there'll be some massive apocalypse where the Roman Empire will be toppled and we will live in this glorious kingdom of God forever, and it will be wonderful and great and everything will be perfect. None of those things happened, right? Those were the two doors. Those are the two options. Neither one happened. Jesus presented a third option, a, a third way out, by doing something unpredictable and by essentially deciding that he had dominion over <laughs> the powers that be, over fate, and taking it upon himself. That is what we are to read from Neo, basically being like, nah, screw it, right? I'm not going to do either of those things. <laughs> I don't care. I don't like you. I don't believe you. And I'm bypassing what you're telling me. And what I love about how literally he does not like the architect is that he basically verbally flips him off at the end. He's just like, if I were you, I would hope we don't meet again. And the architect's like, oh, we won't. Like, he knows that we won't. But like, Neo basically says, like, if we run into each other again, like, I'm going to kick your ass. I don't want to see you again. I don't like you. I'm out of here. And then throws on his shades and goes and saves the day. And the Gnostics believe that basically Jesus did not like the God of Abraham, did not like the God who most Christians believe is his father, right? Well, yeah, because the Old Testament God's an angry God. Yeah, he's a jerk, right? And he, and he, he becomes a much different kind of a figure in the New Testament. But yeah, he's a psychopath in the Old Testament. And there's some truth to that, that the Christian God really kind of isn't the God of the Old Testament. It really is sort of a different figure. And, and certainly so that idea of Gnosticism kind of bled into Christianity. But you can see that playing out here. Like That's what the tension is. Here's this guy saying, I created you, right? I decide what's going to happen. And Neo being like, "Uh, well, no, I've learned a lot (laughs) in these last couple years. And I'm just going to play, like roll the dice and see what happens and and play with fate. And by the way, like, don't ever talk to me again, which is (laughs) again, again, that's, that's what Gnostics basically believe. They were like, this God who supposedly had been our dude is like been lying to us all this time. And he really has just been screwing us over. And there is probably another God out there somewhere. Let's go find it. And they believed that Jesus was the way to that God to be explored more in the revolutions episode for sure. Absolutely. I have a lot of little quick trivia bits that don't really tie into anything. I just wanted to bring up one thing that we didn't really mention just about Agent Smith and how 
not only was he able to multiply throughout the Matrix by copying himself onto other programs and such, but he gets out of the Matrix. Yeah. He downloads his consciousness into right. a human yeah. being. Into Bane? I right? love that yes. idea. I love that. Yeah. And again, I think that also plays to what I was talking about earlier, which is this idea that we're being presented with this new reality of, no, it's not the Matrix is the fake reality and ours is the real reality. It's like there's no such thing as a real reality. There's only different versions of it and we can decide where we're more human than not, but we can't decide which one's more authentic. And so the idea that Smith can become a person the same way that we can become figures in the Matrix is great. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. I think we we talked about it like two hours ago when we started this podcast about how abruptly this movie ends. And we're going to record the Revolutions episode probably four days from now. You're going to be hearing it one week from now. So it's not like you have to wait, but like it's such an unsatisfying cliffhanger because you're just like, oh, I need to know what happens. And there's so much that I love about Revolutions that I can't wait to get to. It has my favorite shot of any of the three Matrix movies. It has my favorite fight scene. Like, it's just, Mm -hmm. it's wonderful. I just, I can't wait to get there. The one thing I kind of do still like about this to be concluded thing is, first of all, that sting, the, the, like, the fanfare it goes out on is just (laughs) classic. And it really invokes that serialized mentality. I feel like you always hear George Lucas talking about what he based Star Wars on and stuff. I really appreciated it again this time that it's like they had the balls to just be like, this isn't... Yeah, you, you, know, you have to see the next the movie, movie, right? You have no choice. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> right. This 12 more dollars, please. Like yeah. One. Okay, so a lot of quick hits things right now. In Enter the Matrix, I like that they have a shorthand that, like, I think Niobe says to either Ghost or maybe the guy doing an impression of Wash of Alan Tudyk from Firefly <laughs> as that, like, kind of lame ship's captain. Uh-huh. She's like, are you red or blue on this? Like, are you in or oh, out? Like, I just love yeah, that. Like, it's... That. Damn, wow. Yeah. Yeah, their operator was kind of annoying, I have to say. By the way, one quick question. What the hell happened to Tank? He didn't die. So where did we know? I'm guessing he probably he retired. retired. I mean he got like yeah, I'm surprised they don't bring him injury. back. They say that Link is kind of related, right? He's like a He's a cousin? Brother in law. Because probably they wrote Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Probably they wrote it at Speed he's, Tank he's... and then they couldn't get the actor back for whatever reason and yeah. Why would an actor that we've never seen in anything else not want to do two Matrix sequels? I mean <laughs> Harold Perrineau is the poor um... man's guy who played Tank. We all know that. <laughs> So Harold Perrineau, Link, is married to the woman who was sisters dozers, with Tank and Dozer, dozers, right? Yeah, yeah. So, yes, yeah. okay. And I think that was supposed to be That Aaliyah, was supposed to be Aaliyah, right? yes. Don't be a black woman in the Matrix, you're going to die. That's the moral of the story. So I was Hazardous. looking at, I saw things, I forgot that Aaliyah was supposed to be in this, but other people up for that part were Ava Mendez, who was like a crazy big name to be that small of a mm. part, Samantha Mumba? You might remember her from Now and Again, which just covered a couple Samantha Mumba songs in their Now That's What I Call Music. Brandy Norwood and Tatiana Ali. Oh. But then Nona Gay, that's Marvin Gaye's daughter, was eventually cast in that role. Oh, that's oh, Marvin yeah. Gaye's daughter? Oh, someone else with last name Gay. Yeah. Huh. There seems to be a musical thread running through all there of There is. And I have, a, I have a... So there's... To, to get very nerdy. So the guy... You, you guys have both seen The Square, right? You've never no? seen The Square? It's a great Australian... I just saw True Lies for the that's first true. time. So, I mean, the fact that I haven't seen The Square is nothing I to be shocked at. We've about the square before it's a great australian thriller i go watch it now directed and co-written by joel and nash edgerton and joel edgerton's actually in it oh but his brother nash edgerton plays one of the security guards in the matrix reloaded because they have every australian actor because there's like 10 of them in that movie (laughs) and the guy who plays the main character in the movie that he directed and co-wrote with his brother 
is the guy who is the ship captain who's talking at the very end of the movie who picked up Bane before the two big oh, movies. Okay. So like there's a there's a link to a movie that came out a few years later. I wonder if that's where they met each other. I'm kind of assumed that it was was in was in filming. The angry old white man, the old uh-huh. angry old man uh-huh. with white he's, hair. He's fantastic in in the square, which is you've got to go see that movie. It's it's amazing. So apparently, in the beginning of the movie, I keep saying Agent Smith, but he's no longer an agent. It's just Smith now. His license plate is IS five four one six. And again, this is this and something else I'm gonna say later. I did no research on, so this might not be right, but I'm assuming it's right. Isaiah oh, chapter God. Yeah, verse okay. sixteen uh-huh. reads. Behold, I have created the smith that bloweth the coals in the fire, and that bringeth forth an instrument for oh. his work, and I have created the water to destroy. I remember, because this, when this movie deep, came out, I was still going stuff. to church every yeah, week, that's... and I remember going and, like, thumbing through the Bible on Sunday morning, like, let me look, oh, like, there, there's where, that's where it says smith, like, yeah, I got it. There's Ezekiel 25.17. The yeah. path of the righteous man, yep. <laughs> that's awesome. Never, ever would have caught that. GM donated 300 cars in this movie, and they wrecked 300 of them. So every single car that was donated was wrecked. The swear that the Merovingian says in French, he's like, I love French. Which I also like the idea that in past iterations of The Matrix, or even in this iteration, the Merovingian was not always French. Like, he probably (laughs) had, like, a Spanish phase, and, like, a Portuguese phase, and, like, a Japanese phase. And in each of those, he, like, tried to, like, live in that world and live in that body and that language. And then he just found French because he likes Mm. to curse. And so the curse that he says is something to the effect of goddamn whore, filthy, (laughs) shithouse, jerk bugger of your mother. So... That's kind Very of wonderful. French. Sean Connery was supposed to be the architect, but did not understand I knew, the I knew script, that. so I he knew turned that. it down. Yeah. The freeway chase took three months to shoot. <laughs> so obviously that wasn't the Wachowski. That was obviously a second director, but like that's much longer than like, like a, a lot of other movies. Movie. Yeah. Speaking of long durations, the scorpion kick that Trinity does in the beginning of the movie, where she kicks like behind her back and over her head and kicks the guy oh, in yeah. the head, it took her six months. How to figure Sorry, that out? How long? Six months. So that was that was Carrie Ann Moss just for six months being like, all right, I'm gonna kick, but like it looks awesome. Like it's just it's a yeah. single shot, sort of thrown away. Oh, so producers were afraid that this movie wouldn't recoup the costs of the everything. So Keanu apparently volunteered. I don't. It doesn't sound like they took him up on the offer, but like we know that he's very sort of philanthropic. That he has more money than he knows what to do with. He apparently volunteered to give up his cut of the ticket sales, which wound up being thirty-eight million dollars. That he volunteered to give that up so that they can actually finish the movie. But I guess they said they figured out some other method of financing the movie. Seraph was supposed to be Jet Li. I believe that. But Jet Li wanted as much awesome. money as Keanu was making, and they were like, no. Oh, like, can you imagine that happen. fight scene with him and Keanu with Jet Li? Oh, man. Yeah. And then they changed it to a female and offered it to Michelle nice. Yeoh, who turned it down to the scheduling conflicts. So then we got the new Seraph. And I like new Seraph. Also, considering the fact that like this is probably two years of your life, and like that's not a huge yeah. part. Like It's important, but it's not like a huge part. So Isn't like, Roy Jones in this? Is there some boxer in this movie? Isn't there like one of the captains? And then he's even in, in the video game footage. He oh, boxes, I think you're right. Sarah. Yeah, I can't tell. I don't know boxing, but I think it's Roy Jones. I mean, everyone in the opening looks like they're managing a sunglass. <laughs> <house. laughs> the inspiration for the morphing effect on the twins was jellyfish. Carrie Ann Moss broke her leg training for a wire stunt. Lawrence Fishburne fractured an arm in another training stunt, and Hugo Weaving put out a disc in his back. While being pulled on a wire. It is Roy Jones, by the so way. You're right. Everybody suffered for their art. Total Film Magazine said this film contained, quote, the worst line ever delivered in a mainstream Hollywood film. And that line was Your life is the sum of a remainder of an unbalanced equation inherent to the programming of the Matrix. 
which oh, that's a great yeah, I'm pretty line. sure, I'm pretty well, sure you know. um, I thought Christmas only comes once a year at the end of The World is Not Enough is the single worst line <laughs> in a mainstream Hollywood movie by far, and I don't think that even comes within 19 miles of that line. So, sorry, Total Film, I don't think your hot take is as hot as you want it to be. The Wachowskis apparently turned down Batman Begins to do the Matrix sequels. I would love to live in a world where the Wachowskis did the I Dark really, Knight trilogy. That would really, kind of be they have a chance to do Dude, I want them to direct The Batman with Ooh. Ben Affleck. That would be crazy. Okay, so now there's three other... There's still quick hits, but a little bit more philosophical in terms of what we've been talking about. The kid from Kid Story, who we see in this in real life. Oh, right. His yes. name, we find out, is Michael Carl Popper, who was a 20th century philosopher who worked on the nature of free will and the relation of mind and choice to the physical realms. People don't know who Michael Karl Popper is, but if you know him, like, if you're the one guy at a theater who, like, out of the hundreds or thousands of people who see this movie, if you're the one guy who knows who he is, that's probably, like, amazing. <laughs> like, that's just like, oh, that's what all of this is yeah. about. Keanu was asked to read three books to prep for this, <laughs> Simulation and Simulacra, Out of Control, and Evolution Psychology. I like that he had homework just like, hey, read this, like, really heady philosophical shit just so you can get into part of playing the nice. one. The idea, and this is something we talked about before with the source, but the idea of all programs being born from the source, an entity of pure light, and returning thereafter, their purpose is fulfilled, is a philosophy borrowed from the Hindu belief in Brahma, who in Hindu mythology is a god composed of pure life energy. This god created all things, and is man's destiny to return to Brahma after his or her destiny is fulfilled. It's also basically the notion of the true god of, of Gnosticism, which is to say that the any, any sort of personified god is a deceiver and that there is an unknowable ultimate god beyond. So the idea that there's a difference between the source and the architect is significant. And then the last thing, and this is another thing that I didn't do any research on and might not be right, but it feels right, is that the keymaker, we didn't even talk about like the... We didn't talk about the fact that Trinity dies in this movie, that you know, there's this crazy, like, sort of like a, a jailbreak, sort of, that they have to do this very complicated thing in order to sort of set the path in motion, and the Keymaker has this very heady monologue about how he basically, I mean, the Keymaker has one purpose in life, and, like, he lived his entire life making keys to get to this moment, but he says that they must knock out 27 blocks of power, and we'll have exactly 314 seconds before the power begins to reroute. Right. And apparently, in the Bible, the 27th book of the New Testament, which is Revelation, chapter 3, verse 14, ah. speaks of being a witness to the source of creation, which in the Matrix is the architect. So that might be, you know, something that somebody made up on IMDb, but even if it's no, not true, like it's, it feels true. Totally right. It yep. feels cool. I initially took the 314 as a pie reference, but that makes sense too. Okay, so I don't think I have any more notes. I think we've covered this one. This might be my favorite podcast that we've ever done. Well, thank you very much, John. You'll be back next week for The oh. Matrix Revolutions because everything that has a beginning has an end and this Matrix cycle, although I would really... There's talk... I don't think it's ever going to happen. There's talk of a Matrix 4, which you'll be back for, but... All-female Matrix reboot? Let's do it. For all things Keanu Club, you can go to cageclub.me or facebook.com slash cageclub. Go to either of those places for all Keanu episodes. You can see what's coming up next. You can see all the Cage Club episodes, Zack Attack, Now and Again. Lots of fun, free things to hear at cageclub.me and facebook.com slash cageclub. I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I'm Mike Manzi. Now that was John Brooks, and we'll see you next time on Keanu Club. What you say, what you say, what you say?